This is a sermon about humility. God has a funny way of making applications for pastors before they get into the pulpit. Riley Blair was unlocking the Youth Activity Center this morning, and one of the students said, are you teaching this morning? And Riley said, yeah. And Riley meant he was teaching a different class, but one of the students said, oh, thank goodness. So if that weren't bad enough, I came in here and I I told Jim that uh, since it was a a sermon on humility that maybe I should sing Garth Brooks' Friends in Low Places. And he said, that's a great idea. I'll turn on the mic as soon as you're finished. And so I'm humbled this morning uh, to be in front of you uh, and to to preach God's word. Um, It's funny that um, if you're the guy who kind of just pops in to preach occasionally, you start looking for topics and... um, I wanted to preach on something I was really good at, so I, I picked humility. Um, some of you will get that eventually. It'll, it'll be really funny. Um, but honestly, this is something that, that I find myself really struggling with. Um, my whole entire high school experience and most of my college experience, I spent making a name for myself. And I became a very prideful wretch. And I felt like I had all the answers, and I kind of used all those answers to kind of make people feel inferior to me. And um, I'm afraid to know the the damage that I caused in those years of just um, a, a, a lack of humility, an obvious lack of humility. Um, I mean, it was in my heart, and it just seemed to come out of my mouth. I I built little Adam idols, and I bowed down to those. Um, And the Lord began to kind of convict me of that, to show me uh, the sin of that lack of humility, of of total um, lack of Christ-likeness. And then I started opening God's Word, and I saw that, you know, His disciples we're struggling with the same thing. And we look at Matthew 4, and I'll get to Matthew 18 in just a minute. Matthew 4, Jesus calls the disciples, and immediately he begins to teach them about humility. Because the very next chapter is the Sermon on the Mount where Christ says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. Later on in that sermon, uh, in chapter 7 of Matthew Jesus reminds us to to deal with the plank in our own eye before we go after somebody else's speck. And he continues to teach, and he he tells his disciples, look, if if you're following me for this to be some kind of prestigious thing, uh, then you're mistaken because the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. And so Christ, he lays this foundation of teaching about humility, and then we watch him live it out to the point where he's rejected in his hometown. And in Matthew 16, he says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross. And so he gives the disciples this theology of humility, and he he does a great job of living that out, giving them examples to follow. And after all that, Matthew 18, the disciples come to him and say, hey, we'd like to know who the greatest in the kingdom is. 
And it's amazing to me, Jesus' response. Verses, literally verses earlier, at the end of chapter 17, Jesus has just told Peter, they're in a conversation about paying taxes in Capernaum and what do we do? And Jesus says, Peter, go cast a line, which is a side note, just to let you know, Jesus and I are going to be such good friends when we see each other face to face. Because if he's commanding people to fish, I'm his guy, okay? But he says, go out, cast the line, you'll catch a fish and our tax payment will be in his mouth. And that's exactly what happens. You would think that would be the answer to who's the greatest in the kingdom. Like, why would you have to ask that question? But alas, disciples are sinful. And so we come to Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, remember the time, shortly thereafter that we've caught a fish with money in its mouth, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you are good to us. You're patient with us and merciful to us. Father, as we look at your word this morning, would you open our eyes to the truth? Help us to be more like Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to answer this question. In a spiritual sense, how do we become children? How do we become a kid again? And, and, and there's a two-part response here. We turn and we imitate. Okay, so there, now all your blanks are full on your outline. Now you can just take a nap, all right? Um, but I want to unpack those things. I want to unpack this turning and this imitating. Because it's odd to me that Jesus didn't respond frustrated with these disciples. And I think that's, that's the thing that he really teaches more about humility in this passage than even bringing the child in and saying, be like this kid is just to watch him respond to this question. Uh, one thing I do want to say, at this point in time with the Jews, it was very common for them to replace the word Yahweh with other kind of heavenly, godly kind of terminology. And so when they say kingdom of heaven, which Matthew talks about throughout his gospel, uh, really think about that as the kingdom of Yahweh, God's kingdom. And so in order to enter his kingdom, God's kingdom. You have to turn and you have to become like a child. And so if you're here today, I'm assuming that you are either in the kingdom, uh, thinking about being in the kingdom, or at least investigating this whole God thing. Who is this Yahweh? Who is God? And, and this passage tells us how we get into the kingdom. And Jesus says, first, it's a turning. And really, all, all this passage is, a, is about humility, uh, including that turning, and including becoming like a child. And humility is a kind of a hard thing to, to grasp, to define. And Andrew Murray, this is a great book he wrote called Humility. He says, humility, it's the chief glory of heaven. It's the true heavenly mindedness. It's the chief of graces. And so... I would say that according to Jesus, 
that entrance into God's kingdom is more about humility than it is anything else. I don't mishear that because he said there's two greatest commandments to love God, love your neighbor. And once you're in the kingdom, that's absolutely correct. But what Jesus is saying is the, you're beginning in the kingdom. You're beginning of your walk with the Lord and really the entirety of your walk with the Lord should be characterized by humility. So I think the question is, well, what, what is humility? How do we get humility? I think we need to deal with those. C.J. Mahaney, who also wrote a book, it's also titled Humility. Uh, and just side note, there's some, book, some of those available in the book table in the fellowship hall. If you want to pick one of those up afterwards. But he said this. Here's his definition of humility. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And I think that's a pretty good definition for us. Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Now, here's the problem with that. Jesus is the epitome of humility. It is Jesus' humility that we are after. Jesus cannot assess his own sinfulness, right? He has no sin to assess. When Jesus brings the child in and he puts the child here and he says, be like this kid, well, the, probably this is a toddler from the best that we can figure out. It was somebody that Jesus probably knew. He called, the toddler walks in. He says, be like this toddler. Well, toddlers don't have the mental faculties to assess their own sinfulness or to understand the glory of God. We don't have the understanding for those either. So at the heart of humility, I don't think, is a low view of ourselves and a high view of God. I think it is dependence on the Lord. I think that's what these, these scriptures are telling us. That's what Jesus is ultimately saying, that the core of humility is a dependence upon him, childlike dependence. And so here, here's my definition, and this is a work in progress. It's being dependent upon God and living as if you really believe that dependence is an absolute necessity. So humility is it's being dependent on God, but you live in a way that you really think that's vital to your spiritual life. Here's, here's what I mean. Let me unpack that a little bit further. When we see our neediness, then we go to God and depend on him to meet all of our needs. We don't see our needs and ramp up our effort. We don't see our needs and think if we just worked harder, if we were just stronger, if we could just do better. Okay, that's a lack of humility. It's when we see our sin and we depend on God to deal with our guilt and the shame that we don't turn to other things. We don't feel the weight of our sin and we see the guilt and we see the shame and we turn and we want to get rid of it with alcohol or self-harm or, again, just, just amping up our church activity because that'll take away us feeling bad about our sins. That's a lack of humility. It's seeing our inabilities and not saying to the Lord, I can't be used. He can't use me. But going to him and allowing him to work through your weaknesses, that's humility. And what Jesus is saying is that kind of dependence, that kind of humility has a very finite moment in history beginning, and it's with this turning. Okay, so if you have your outline and your um, OCD about the outline, that's the first blank. It's to turn. 
This is not my favorite translation, the ESV. If you have a King James or if you're New American Standard, it says converted. I think that's a better way to translate it. This is a very passive verb. In other words, what Jesus is saying is really to start this whole path of humility, to start walking with me in an intimate relationship, it's not about how hard you work or putting yourselves together. It's about me, Yahweh, turning you from destruction. That's the beginning of humility. And it's so important that we remember that. It is God who saves, converts, takes out our heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh, gives us his spirit. We don't work for that. So if you're like, man, I stink at humility, don't try a bunch of different things. Fall on your face before your heavenly father. It's as if Jesus is kind of answering this question when he says turn is, look, we've got the greatest covered. You don't need to ask that question. The greatest is the one who controls all things, who needs nothing from us, who's totally independent, who's holy and glorious without humanity. And yet in his mercy and his love, he reaches down and he rescues some from destruction. That is who is the greatest in the kingdom. And so we need to learn from those words. As Jesus is telling the disciples, he said, look, I don't need the greatest. That's what Jesus is saying. He said, I need children. I need kids. That's who I need following me. And church, that should be incredibly encouraging to you. God does not need you to be great. He is the greatest. He needs you to be a dependent dependent. He needs you to be a kid. Last week, uh, Pat Wood and I were at a conference, all these great youth leaders, all these great pastors, and it's, a, it's always a, a, a great conference. Great preaching, great to fellowship with these guys, but I always leave a little bit like, man, I'm never, never going to be those people. And then I come back and I dive into Matthew 18, and I hear Jesus say, I don't need you to be those people. I don't need you to be great. I need you just to be a little kid and follow me and love me. And so it starts with God's turning. So if you're here and you're lost and you're investigating this whole Jesus thing, pray for God to turn your heart. That's step number one. Secondly, if we're going to cultivate humility, after God turns us, we need to imitate. We need to imitate Christ. We need to imitate kids. So, again, Jesus calls these disciples. He teaches them about humility. He lives out humility in front of them. And then they have the gall to come and say, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Now, thank goodness they were asking Jesus and not me. Because I would have taken my hands out of my tunic and put them around the throats of the disciples and said, I told you a million times, you know, how many times have I got to do this? I mean, that, that is our response a lot of times in life. But it's amazing to me that Jesus in his humility doesn't do that. He just says, okay, guys, how about another lesson? How about another example? He's patient with them. He doesn't get angry. He understands their brokenness. And he's sympathetic to that. 
He empties himself in this moment in Matthew 18. He empties himself. This is how Paul describes Jesus' humility in Philippians 2.7. He empties himself. In other words, he doesn't say, guys, look, I'm wiser than Solomon. You need to be listening to me. Guys, I'm I am. Do what I say. And he doesn't, or he doesn't say, look, I'm too important for a stupid question like this. I'm just too busy to answer this ridiculous question. He doesn't do any of that. He looks at them in humility. He looks at these guys who are so incredibly unlike him. And he gives them a very genuine answer to a very, very stupid question. And there's your lesson. But just in case you didn't get it, disciples, we'll bring in these kids. And maybe you can get the lesson from them. And my question for us is, do we do that? Do we do that, church? Do we look in the eyes of those people who are not like us and empty ourselves to love them well? Because there are people outside of these walls, they don't look like us, they don't talk like us, they don't smell like us. They're not involved in our political party. They have different ideas about sexuality than we do. They are broken and they take a lot of time and a lot of energy and they're defiled. And the question is, will we empty ourselves to move toward those people's brokenness? That's what Jesus is doing here. Not saying I'm too busy my status is this and your status is that. They don't, he doesn't say that. Jesus doesn't. He empties himself and moves toward the broken. And you and I need to imitate that. We also need to imitate kids. I know what you're thinking. Adam, you do that really well already. Okay? But let's go a little deeper. I'm not going to argue with that. The question is, what does that exactly mean to humble ourselves, humble ourselves like a child? Because the passage really doesn't explicitly explain that. The ESV study Bible, I think, kind of captures the idea here. The commentary says, the humility of a child consists of childlike trust, vulnerability, and the inability to advance his or, own, his or her own cause apart from the help, direction, and resources of a parent. All right, let me read that again. Because this is what it really means if you're going to be humble like a child. It means trust, vulnerability, and an inability to advance your own cause apart from help, direction, and resources from a parent. It says nothing about, well, you have this incredible view of your own sin and this incredible view of God's holiness. Those things are great. And I think for us, that's probably a good inventory of, of humility. But really, at the, at the end of the day, humility is this. Being aware of your weaknesses, being very aware of your inabilities, and knowing where to go for help, and going there. That's all humility is. So how does that, knowing that, help us to practice humility? Well, I'll say this. I think humility, as understood in God's Word, has the vertical kind of component and a horizontal component. And, and here's what I mean by that. 
when the disciples understood that it was Jesus who was the greatest, they began to understand the vertical component. That compared to Christ, we're nothing. Peter, James, John, Jesus didn't need you. It was a privilege to be called into his service. He's the greatest. He's the one that told you to cast the line, catch the fish, and your IRS payment would be in, in the mouth of that fish. He's the greatest. That's, un, that's the vertical understanding of humility. But horizontally is understanding like a child that you're vulnerable, that you're broken, that you have significant inabilities, that you're like everybody else out there. You're even with all those other sinners, even if their sin doesn't look exactly like your sin. And, and when we get these things right, the vertical and the horizontal, we begin to understand that God, he doesn't need us to be great. And we understand that we're broken, just as broken as anyone else, including those people outside these four walls. I mean, the only difference between in the kingdom and out of the kingdom is Jesus. That's it. But when we understand that, we become more like him. And instead of avoiding the brokenness out there, even avoiding our own brokenness and the messy, time-consuming people and ministries, we walk right into them. We walk right into that mess and we introduce those people's pain and those folks' need to the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus. And here's the crazy thing. Jesus says, if you do that, you'll be the greatest too. Crazy. Mind blown. So my encouragement to us is for us to be dependent dependents. To walk humbly before the Lord. For us to be kids again. And this morning as we come to this table behind me. Come because you're dependent upon Christ. Come because he is the greatest, so you don't have to be. Let's pray. Father, thank you. You're so incredibly good, patient, kind. Just look at these, this passage, Lord, and I, I just think of my own impatience, my own selfishness, Lord, and I'm in a sense, crushed before you, Lord, would you bind us up? Help us to practice humility. Help us to walk with you in dependence. Help us to trust like a little child. And then help us to leave here and take Christ to those who are hurting, who are needy. Holy Spirit, be at work. We can't do this alone. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. But when we think about a sacrament, the Lord's Supper and baptism, it's not just a sign of grace like a rainbow, right, with, with what God said to Noah. But it's a sign that by faith you are participating in the grace of Christ. You're saying that this grace is mine. You're saying, I'm not, it's not just that Jesus died, but Jesus died for me. 
and I'm professing that. I have put my faith and trust completely in Christ's death to save me. My heart is his, and now I am his follower. I am his disciple. Now, why don't we take the Lord's Supper? Well, quite simply because Jesus told us to do it. Where baptism marks a person being part of God's covenant community, in the same way circumcision did in the Old Testament, they're part of the covenant. The Lord's Supper, the same as the Passover in the Old Testament, marks continued fellowship and hope between Jesus and his people. In other words, it's a public confession that I am a follower of Jesus. My life is his, and I am looking to his death completely and totally for my salvation to be made right with God. I trust that he is God, and he died for me. He's the Lamb of God that was slain, whose sacrifice is all I need to be made right with God. And it is a public statement that my faith is in Christ to redeem and save me from the condemnation that I deserve because of my own sin. Now, do these things give you real grace? Yes, but it's not magic. Okay? They give real grace only to the believer with the Holy Spirit in them. Make sense? The function of the Lord's Supper is the same as God's Word. To present to you the glory and the grace of Christ, like we sang earlier, Lord, let me see your beauty. There is no advantage in taking the Lord's Supper if you're not a believer without faith, without being born again, without knowing Christ personally. In fact, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine says, if you don't take it by faith as a believer, you're eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. Now, those are serious words. It's because you are publicly saying, this is the Lamb of God, yet I will not follow. I will not trust. I will not repent of my sins and become his disciples. Now, what about children? And we'll finish with this. If you think that your children have become believers, we offer communicants classes here at the church where we can graciously meet with them and lovingly help the parents discern if they have saving faith in Christ. And elders, maybe it's not when we're offering a class and the elders are always happy to meet with your children. And then they'll be ready to take the Lord's Supper confident as a believer. What about if you're from another church? If you're not part of this church, um, then this is for you. This is God's grace and spiritual nourishment for you as long as you have put your faith in Christ alone to save you and you've expressed that faith publicly in baptism, whether as a child or an adult, somewhere. Now, I'm just going to pray that the Holy Spirit, the same way he does with the Word, would work through these things to spiritually grow us and nourish us. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the body of Jesus, his flesh torn apart for us. Lord, he was the Lamb of God. Father, he is the Passover, the Paschal Lamb. Father, and we want to feast on him by faith now meaning that we look to him and we partake of him and saying, this is my hope, this is my trust, 
that God alone has saved me through sending his own son to be a sacrifice. His blood poured out, his life poured out for me in the deepest of love and commitment to reconciling me to himself. Lord, let your Holy Spirit grow us as your people now. Give us enabling grace in Jesus' name. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was in taking the Passover feast with his disciples. And like a minister in his name, he, he did what I'm doing now. As they're sitting around and he broke bread and he passed it. And this would have been standard, but he said something that they had never heard before, quite unique, just before he went to the cross. He said, this is my body. This is broken for you. And he had prepared them for this in John 6 when he says, I am the bread of life. Now he breaks the bread and he says, this is my body broken for you. And that same night in the Passover feast, Jesus took up the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant that's made with my blood, the Lamb of God, my life. This is going to be what reconciles you to God. My friends, it's the blood of Jesus Christ poured out, the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink. Our closing hymn is number 688. If you'll please stand together, we'll sing Have Thine Own Way, Lord, verses 1 and 2. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still,